Hey, look at us. This is episode 401, the 76th full-length episode of the Chicago History Podcast. Normally at the end of a 25-episode season, I like to take a little break, but I've got a lot more stories to tell, so let's get to it. Before we do, a quick thanks to all the listeners who have been around since the early days, and a warm welcome to all the new listeners joining us from around the world. Last I checked, this podcast has been downloaded in nearly 2,500 cities in 81 countries, which means a whole lot to me. If you like the show, please take a moment and leave a review. If you're not sure how, there is a link in the show's notes. And now... There are approximately 1,500 shipwrecks on the bottom of Lake Michigan. Of those lost, none resulted in as great a loss of life as the one that went down on September 8, 1860, off the shores north of the city of Chicago. Today we're discussing the Titanic of the Great Lakes, the sinking of the Lady Elgin. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get to the Lady Elgin, a little history on the growth of Chicago. In 1830, Chicago was merely a village with a population of only 250. By 1840, it had grown from a town to a city with a population of 4,500. In 1850, that population had grown to 28,000, and by 1860, Chicago had become the ninth largest city in the United States with 112 thousand inhabitants. That's just slightly more populous than the suburb of Elgin is today. That rapid growth required building materials and all of those materials needed to be brought to the city. One of the primary routes for that was the waterways, especially Lake Michigan. Now sure, you look out over Lake Michigan most summer days and the water is filled with sailboats and other types of recreational crafts. But in the late 1850s into the 1860s, Chicago's portion of Lake Michigan was a busy port for the shipping of materials and passengers. Chicago shipped Midwest grain and steel to other port cities on the Great Lakes such as Cleveland, Milwaukee, and Pittsburgh. And in turn, those cities and others shipped goods back, creating a maritime industry. Vast forests in Upper Michigan were cut down and put on ships to supply lumber to Chicago. One of the ships built to carry passengers and freight on the Great Lakes was the Lady Elgin, a 252-foot sidewheel steamer built in 1851 in Buffalo, New York, at a cost of $95,000, approximately $3.4 million today. A sidewheel steamer, like the name implies, is a boat with large paddle wheels on either side propelled by a steam engine. On September 7, 1860, nearly 400 people boarded the Lady Elgin in Milwaukee for a trip to Chicago. I read a number of pieces claiming the passengers were heading to Chicago to attend a political rally held by Democratic candidate Stephen Douglas. Although many of the Democratic-leaning Irish aboard the ship would likely have enjoyed such a rally, Douglas was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the time. 
According to Susan Whitcomb in a fall 2010 column on WinnetkaHistory.org, the real reason for the trip was a fundraiser by Milwaukee's 3rd Ward's Irish Union Guard to raise awareness of their cause and generate the funds needed to properly arm the Union Guard. You see, just a few months before, in March of 1860, a Waukesha, Wisconsin assemblyman in the very anti-slavery state of Wisconsin introduced a resolution that directed the governor to declare war against the United States unless the federal government took action to abolish slavery. As these plans advanced, local militia groups were contacted to see if they would support a move against the government. Now, militia groups these days are wildly different than they were back then, but in 1860, militia groups were independent groups of citizens officially recognized by the state. Those exhibiting proper discipline and organization were supplied federal arms. In Milwaukee, of the four recognized militia groups at the time, all but one agreed to act in support of a state rebellion if it came to that. Sorry, I'm, I'm still thinking about Wisconsin declaring war on the United States. There is definitely an Onion article there somewhere. The leader of the Irish Union Guard, Captain Garrett Berry, believed in abolishing slavery, but felt declaring war against the United States would be treason, so he declined to support this idea. The Republican governor of Wisconsin, Alexander Randall, responded to Berry by taking away their weapons and disbanding their group. Back to the Lady Elgin, the excursion from Milwaukee arrived by dawn and spent the day in Chicago touring the city, enjoying parades and all that the greatest city in the world has to offer. That evening around 11 p.m., they were set to return to Wisconsin. The Lady Elgin's Captain Jack Wilson, concerned that September weather and a possible storm on the lake could make the trip dangerous, hesitated, but was eventually convinced to depart. Around 2.30 a.m., the Lady Elgin was about 12 miles off the shore of a small town called Port Clinton, now about where Highland Park, Illinois, is. The storms had picked up significantly, making visibility limited. Nearby, a 129-foot schooner called Augusta was hauling a heavy load of lumber to Chicago when it was knocked nearly on its side by a giant wave. The lumber on its deck shifted. The Augusta became difficult to control, putting on a crash course with the Lady Elgin. The Augusta ran the port side of the Lady Elgin at a nearly 90-degree angle below the waterline at a speed of 11 knots. For a few moments, the ships were connected until another wave knocked the Augusta free. Thinking the Lady Elgin did not suffer serious damage and fearing for his own ship, captain of the Augusta continued on. Meanwhile, water was rushing into the Lady Elgin. Seventy head of cattle that were below deck were driven overboard in a futile attempt to lighten the vessel. Heavy cargo, including iron stoves, was moved to the starboard side of the Lady Elgin to try to raise the gaping hole on the port side out of the water. 
As it became evident the ship could not be saved, the crew prepared for the worst. Of the four lifeboats on board, one overturned, two were partially loaded and set into the lake. The fourth leaked and could not be used. The ship came apart and fell to the bottom of Lake Michigan within 30 minutes of impact. Passengers clung to anything they could to stay afloat, struggling against the waves and pounding rain for more than five hours. Passengers and crew in the two lifeboats drifted south and west, approaching the shore of Winnetka, Illinois, around 8 a.m. Others began to arrive after that, clinging to pieces of wood, pieces of furniture, and barely clinging to life. Students from Evanston's Northwestern University and Garrett Biblical Institute, now the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, heard about what happened and went to the shore that morning looking to help. One of the students, Edward Spencer, although referred to as frail, was an avid swimmer. Spencer, along with a student named Combs, tied ropes around their waists and began diving into the surf, swimming toward the breakers, where those who clung to anything they could were in the most danger of being hurt. At one point, those holding the other end of the rope saw Spencer get struck in the face by a piece of wreckage. Noticing him bleeding, those on shore began to pull Spencer back, but he shrugged off the rope and continued to rescue those in need. After rescuing 15 people suffering from an almost unbearable amount of fatigue, Spencer spotted a husband and wife struggling to make it to shore. With his last bit of remaining strength, he headed back into the water and successfully got them both to land. Those on shore eventually pulled Spencer to a fire on the beach to warm him. Exhausted and delirious, he reportedly asked bystanders over and over, Did I do my best? Did I do my best? Spencer is credited with rescuing 17 passengers over the course of six hours. He sustained injuries during his rescue efforts that allegedly left him a semi-invalid for the rest of his life. A plaque in his honor was first placed in the Northwestern University Gymnasium and is reportedly now housed in the Northwestern University Library. Two days after the event on September 10, 1860, the Chicago Tribune printed a lengthy story about the incident, including stories from the shore the morning after. There was a large raft with an estimated 50 persons headed toward shore, but as the raft approached the breakers, it came apart. Those on board fought against the undertow, but only 15 made it to shore. One story noted a large man standing on a piece of wreckage, coolly guiding it toward the shore over the course of two or three hours. As he reached the breakers, his raft broke into pieces, and he frantically tried to reach shore as anxious spectators tried to reach him. Just when it looked as though he would make it, a heavy wave crashed down upon him, pulling him out into the lake. Carcasses of the cattle that had been pushed overboard in an attempt to lighten the load of the ship began to wash ashore. A piano from the steamer washed ashore as well. Moments before it did, a man was seen holding one of its legs, only to lose his grip as it approached the breakers and slide under the water's surface. 
Among the debris of the wreck that washed ashore was kegs of spirits and wines, which some of the party on shore used, resulting in a drunken fight. Captain Jack Wilson lost his life while attempting to save two women caught in the surf. Captain Garrett Barry of the Irish Union Guard also lost his life trying to save victims. Exhausted, Barry drowned only a hundred feet from shore. Many of those who survived the initial sinking of the boat and had floated for hours lost their lives approaching shore due to exhaustion and the strong undertow. There were also reports of ghouls who showed up at the shore, not eager to help those in need, but to help themselves to items washed ashore and valuables still on the bodies of the dead. Lost in the tragedy was the ship's manifest, so the true number of those who perished will never be known, but based on reports, there were an estimated 398 people on board the Lady Elgin that night. Only 96 survived. Only eight of those 96 survivors were women who likely had never learned to swim as it wasn't encouraged at the time and were also likely pulled under by their restrictive clothing. Because of the large number of Irish-American political operatives that died during the sinking of the Lady Elgin, it has been credited by historians with transferring the balance of political power in Milwaukee from the Irish to the Germans. Lake Michigan continued to give up the bodies of those lost in the sinking of Lady Elgin long after the event. A woman's body around Thanksgiving, 1865 miles south of St. Joseph, Michigan. Two more bodies near Michigan in early December. One young Kentucky woman's family offered $1,000, slightly more than $33,000 today, for the return of her body, a reward paid to four men. Many of those missing were never found. At the end of September 1860, the coroner's jury returned their verdict in the Lady Elgin disaster. In brief, it said that although the Lady Elgin did everything right, well-maintained, and was, quote, properly equipped with boats, floats, bars, axes, buckets, and other means of preserving life in accordance with the laws of the United States, end quote, and had the right number of crew on board, they should have had more lookouts, as the steamer was, quote, running in a stormy and tempestuous night, end quote. They also took issue with the type of lifeboats and life preservers on board, and that there were not more lights on the steamer. In a marine version of victim blaming, little mention was made of the Augustus role in the sinking of the Lady Elgin, other than it had placed a lantern in a position that made the craft difficult to see. Based on reports of the day during the height of the storm, I'm not sure it would have helped. The following year, a composer named Henry C. Works wrote a popular song about the fate of the steamer called The Lady Elgin. I had a moment where I read that and thought, well, that's weird, way too soon. But then I realized I grew up listening to Gordon Lightfoot sing about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Lightfoot recorded his song in December of 1975, just one month after the freighter Edmund Fitzgerald went down in Lake Superior with loss of the entire 29-man crew and released it in August of 1976. It eventually made it to number two on the Billboard charts because apparently people in the 70s love songs about drowning men. I kid. Lightfoot is amazing. 
In September of 1861, nearing the one-year anniversary of the sinking of the Lady Algin, the Chicago Tribune included a mention of the ill-fated voyage, claiming that 27 unclaimed bodies from the sinking of the Lady Elgin were at Rose Hill Cemetery, quote, tenderly buried side by side in a tract set apart by the directors of Rose Hill, end quote. Unfortunately, I could find no record beyond this as to whether those bodies were eventually moved or lost to time. Four years after the sinking of the Lady Elgin, a new rule required sailing vessels to carry running lights. On March 26, 1899, nearly 40 years after the tragedy, the Chicago Tribune ran a story with the headline, Graves of Lady Elgin Dead Desecrated. In it, the writer describes a, quote, desolate section of a half-woodland, half-meadowland pasturage in a remote corner of the little village of Highwood, Illinois, end quote, where an undetermined number of the unidentified dead of the Lady Elgin were buried. The description continues calling it, quote, rubbish-ridden, end quote, and claims, quote, in winter the snow throws its charitable cloak over the face and form of the place, but cannot altogether hide its ugliness. In summer the grass grows sparingly, and there the grave-trampling cattle eke out a scanty existence, end quote. That area, which historians have narrowed down based on records, is now part commercial, part residential. No word on whether those graves were ever moved. The Lady Elgin was mentioned by history nerds and newspapers every so often throughout the next 90 years, but the story had all but fallen into obscurity. That is, until 1989, when it was discovered by a local diver named Harry Zitch. The wreckage, consisting of four main debris fields in 50 to 60 feet of water four and a half miles due east of Highland Park, Illinois, became the focus of legal battles. In brief, Zitch said, I found it, it's mine, I want to strip it and put the artifacts on display for all to enjoy. And various government agencies said, hold up there, Harry. Zitch called the Lady Elgin the Holy Grail of the Great Lakes. Zitch was later awarded ownership of the ship in 1999, but by then other unscrupulous divers had begun to strip it. Although Zitch passed in 2016, divers interested in visiting the wreck must obtain permission from the Lady Elgin Foundation and observe the preservation laws governing historic sites. The site of the wreck has been cataloged by the Underwater Archaeological Society of Chicago, and the Lady Elgin was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1999. The schooner Augusta, blamed for the tragedy by many, was painted a different color and had its name changed to Colonel Cook. It was caught in another storm in 1888 on Lake Erie and sank. It is now illegal to remove artifacts from any Great Lakes shipwreck over 50 years old unless granted legal salvage rights and all surrounding states and provinces enforce strict historic conservation laws to protect wrecks. A strong conservation ethic has also developed among Great Lakes divers, and very few now remove anything from historic wreck sites. Edward Spencer, the student from the Bible College credited with saving 17 people that fateful day, dropped out of school and returned home to Rock Island, Illinois. He never graduated or became a minister, but he did get married, had children, and later moved to California to live on a farm. 
He passed on at age 81 and is buried in Glendale, California. One Chicago-area newspaper headline sharing the news of his death read, Lady Elgin Hero Dies in the West. Nine years before his death, Spencer was asked by a student at Northwestern University if he regretted his decision to get involved on September 8, 1860, since it took such a toll on his body. Spencer responded, quote, If I had to do it again, I should wish to do on that occasion just what I did. listening to today's episode about the sinking of the Lady Elgin. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various items related to this episode's subject. If you'd like to learn more, that's in the show's notes. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Sincerely, thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArt, JKS on Instagram, or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in stay safe.